in the How To OT. As always, I'm your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, we are so excited to be releasing our 10th episode, featuring an interview with Dr. Carolyn Long. She shares with us how to use research to strengthen your OT license, the importance of functional cognition in improving patient outcomes, her perspective on research-informed care, and shares some amazing stories and examples from her own life along the way. Let's get to it. I'm here at the Washington University and St. Louis Institute of Public Health. Dr. Carolyn Baum, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks. I'm happy to do so. Well, I really appreciate it. And you're really a figure in OT that doesn't really need an introduction, but I love our listeners to have a little bit of background so they understand where your research is coming from and where your expertise is coming from. Um, So Dr. Baum is now a professor of occupational therapy and neurology and social work here at WashU. Uh, you were the longtime director of the program in occupational therapy here, a two-time president of the American Occupational Therapy Association, former president of what is now the NVCOT, the chair of the research commission for the American Occupational Therapy Foundation, and you're still conducting your own research. Is that correct? I am. That's awesome. And just to kind of get things started, I wanted to ask you what role you see yourself playing in our field, the field of occupational therapy, moving forward? I've always been such a strong proponent of the relationship of occupation and health and knew that we needed to put science behind everyday life because our lens is so focused on making it possible for people to live lives. And to do that required me to use a level of skills that I actually developed through the profession itself um, because after I had been chair of standards and ethics and vice president and president of AOTA, I was poised to be involved in some policy initiatives. And the first thing that AOTA had to do after I was president of AOTA the first time was serve on a healthcare policy agenda for the American people, which was a public health initiative with medicine to try to outline how we would build a stronger medical system to improve the everyday lives of people. And I was the only OT that was included in this group, which was a very, very large group. It was mostly public health people and people from the AMA but I was kind of instrumental in making sure that they didn't just talk about rehab, but they talked about occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech, because they were trying to put forth policy initiatives, and I didn't want them to exclude any one of the professions in the policy work, which really was very essential for having Medicare and insurance recognize all three professions, not just rehabilitation in general. So I did that, and then I was um, fortunate enough to be on the first policy group that wrote the plan for the National Center for Medical Rehabilitation for Congress, that is now the NCMRR, a part of the NIH, which funds rehabilitation research. And that had to be established in the questions that 
would enhance our understanding of everyday life had to be included in those initiatives. So I did that. And then the, the other major, major thing that I did was I served on the Institute of Medicine's committee that wrote the report to Congress of the status of rehabilitation science and engineering and supporting people with disabilities. So I always had this policy orientation. But I, I really felt like we had to have the data. We had to have the knowledge to put forth into these policies to ensure that OT had a presence because we brought something unique to the evolving science. And so um, I don't think many people realize this, but I was doing some preliminary work in Alzheimer's disease when I knew that I had to know what people could do, not what they couldn't do when they had cognitive loss. But in the process of doing that, I had to answer questions that I felt were important, which is what, because there was so much variance in people's performance. Some people who had Alzheimer's in the mild stage and moderate stage were still very active and others weren't. And so I wanted to look at variance and that's not where measurement was at that point. Everybody was reducing everything to the mean and I wanted to see what, what was the variance. So I needed to go back and get a PhD so that I could be able to conduct my work using scientific principles and using scientific analysis. So at age 45, I went back to get my PhD, and the first things I had to do was take linear algebra and calculus so that I could do the statistical procedures that would make it possible for me to look at variance using structured equation modeling, which is kind of all done by computers now. Yeah. But when I did it, I had to write prox statements. <laughs> and it was, it was a huge undertaking for me to... to someone who thought big picture to have to deal with massive levels of detail, but I did it. And what it did for me, and I believe for OT science, was that to almost like, I, as a part of my doctoral work, I developed the activity card sort mm -hmm. alongside one of my colleagues, Dorothy Edwards, developed what was initially called the kitchen test assessment, which is still usable today, but evolved into the executive function performance test, mm -hmm. which my, I also did this alongside Dorothy Edwards because we were working in the Alzheimer's Research Center together. I developed the functional behavior profile, and I developed a tool called the HOEA, which isn't very well used, but is a really interesting checklist for clinicians, particularly going into homes to check out home safety kinds of issues. And so all through the time I was director of the OT program, I was doing small projects and working on the measurement issues of these tools. But as I was moving towards stepping down from being the director after actually 31 years, I knew I had work yet to do, and I knew that I needed to um, be in a research position, and very fortunately, the university and our new program director, Lisa Connor, felt strongly that I could make 
additional contributions. So I'm now writing grants, getting grants, doing research, and really putting these tools to work in building predictive models and looking at how do we improve the everyday lives of people. And I believe that along the way, I have been instrumental in developing the PEOP framework, which is person occupation performance model and, and participation model. And these measures give us insight to not only the person's characteristics, but their cognitive capacity and their environmental supports to support occupation. And so I'm enjoying putting the pieces together and working with students to build new models of care, particularly for people in community. I'm sharing the lab with Dr. Alex Wong, and together we have the Cognitive Rehabilitation and Community Engagement Lab, and my major work is on community engagement. That's amazing. And I think OT is such a role in community engagement. And you mentioned how you've been very instrumental in policy for OT and securing funding for research for OT. And I wanted to ask you kind of a follow-up question. Why do you think it's so important for the everyday OT practitioner to be aware of research and to be using research to support their interventions each day? you kind of given me a heads up on this question, so I've been giving a huge amount of thought to it. And... I think we have the wrong idea about research for the clinician to use. It's not that they have to use research. They need to take the experience that's been gained by the study to apply it to improve the lives of the people that they are serving. Um, for example, some people think, I don't have time to do assessment. Well, I don't want to think about what I do as assessments. I want to think about measures as tools for me as a clinician to get the information I need to know to help the person move through a trajectory that will allow them to live their lives. So of course I need to know what their occupations were before their active, before their injury or before their disease took hold. Of course I need to know what their cognitive capacity is and what kind of support they need to be able to do the things that are important to them and to go through recovery. Of course we need to know what their level of social support is because the literature is full of research that tells us social support is one of the key indicators to recovery from any medical condition. So if we don't know what they did, what they can do, what their level of social support is, and what their environment offers them, then as a clinician, we aren't giving ourselves the information to be able to create the opportunity for the patient to have the possible, the best outcome, the best recovery, and the best trajectory towards a long-term recovery, because things don't happen within two days or 12 days or 15 days. Anyone who has any kind of a neurological problem has a chronic health problem that has to be managed over time and requires really what OT's lens 
offers them in their life journey. So it's whether, I mean, we, we know a lot about cognition, we know about psychological factors and depression and anxiety, and we know a lot about motor systems and sensory systems and the importance of meaning in people's lives. And we also need to know what the environment affords them, what kind of social support they have, and what kind of social support they need, and do they have the social capital to actually move back into community and move back to work. And so, I don't know, I just think that thinking research is distant doesn't give the clinician the power of the stronger lens, because that research is what's helping to form what it is we can do to help people live lives. Yeah, that was very eloquently put, and, and it sounds like you're kind of even suggesting a, a perspective change when it comes to how we view research, how we shouldn't be looking at it as, oh, I need to find a research article that backs up my intervention, but we should look at it, I want to be informed about the research that's going on so I can better serve um, my clients and I can enlarge my scope to be able to do so in a variety of settings or situations. That's exactly right. And I think we have to think about it this way. Do you really want to go to a physician that doesn't know the latest? I personally have a chronic disease and there have been some very major advances in that chronic disease. I want a physician who knows how to help me manage my health because he has used that research to integrate it into his interactions with me. And I just have an example because I, w I was in Italy recently and one of my best friend's husband is a, um, he calls himself a diabetologist, but he's an endocrinologist who specializes in diabetes. He'd just been at the meeting, the international meeting in Barcelona, Spain, and he knew that I was using insulin, and he asked me if I had heard about the new fast-acting insulin, and I said, no, I use Humalog. And he said, there's an insulin that acts so much faster and manages blood sugar, so you have to use less insulin. Do you want to try it? And he had come home with samples, and we tried it, and now I'm going to my physician here to show him how much better my blood glucose levels are because I tried this new fast-acting insulin that pulls it down and normally I would use twice as much insulin as I have with this new insulin so because it just pulls it down so fast yeah. so I don't know put that in the context of being an OT mm -hmm. do you need to practice the way people have taught you because they've done it so many years or do you need to find mentors that can help you translate some of these new findings into things that you can do to help people live lives. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it. So yeah, thank you. That's a, a perspective I'm definitely trying to take on as a budding practitioner, um, hopefully soon. And I think this is a great segue to, to dive into some of the research that you've done. And maybe ask you to share some of your recommendations for clinicians on the latest and greatest of, of what you found in, in conducting your research. So a lot of your work and research focuses on participation of people who have disabilities. Can you share with us maybe some of the, 
latest and greatest findings of how participation affects health? Well, the literature is very clear now that you have to be active, you have to be doing things to support your health. So we've been able to translate a lot of things from even other people's studies into why it's so important to do. For example, there's a lot of new research on the, on the impact of sedentary behavior on social isolation and decline in older adults. Well, sedentary behavior comes when the person's not strong enough, doesn't have enough action plans, doesn't have self-efficacy for their engagement and activity, doesn't have the social support for people to take them places to do things. So when I talk about participation, I go beyond the ICF definition of, of engagement in a life activity, or I can't even remember the term because I think it's so restrictive. What do people do? What brings meaning to them? What gives them the opportunity to express themselves? And I always ask clinicians and students to think about themselves. What did it take for you to be where you are today while you're listening to this? Well, obviously you had to have routines and you had to have plans and you know, maybe it's a snowy day and you had to drive in in complicated traffic or maybe it's it's there's been a family tragedy and you're having some depressive symptomatology and you had to work around that so much of what we do is dependent on our capacity to do it but most professions look at what people can't do and i think ot is the only one that really focuses on what people can do. But in order to know what they can do, you have to know what they've done before. And so I developed the activity card sort of the part of my dissertation specifically for people with Alzheimer's because I knew that if we could keep people active, they would require less care from their caregivers and they wouldn't have as many disturbing behaviors. And, so I, that was my hypothesis, that engagement and activity was a critical role for people with cognitive loss. Well, I developed, along with my colleague Dorothy Edwards, um, the activity card sort, which was at the time about 79 activities that we validated that older people do. And you ask the question, do you do this? Have you ever done this? Do you do this now, do you do this less, or have you given it up? Well, what you can figure out, if they're doing it now, they've done it less, or they've given it up, they did it before. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people say they can't figure out what people did before, but you can. And so if they're doing it less and giving it up, they did it. And so they have all those skills to be able to do things. So as an OT, you need to find out, do they want to do it again? What is it? Is it meaningful to them? What do they already know? How can I build off of that? How can I use it for exercise? How can I use it for getting better cognitive strength with better strategies and action plans? So we just revised the 
will be the third edition of the activity card sort. And it's going to be electronic. It was developed with an NIH grant. Um, I'm on a grant with um, Dershan Yang from a, a technology company in Chicago and Tim Wolf from now MU. He used to be, he was my doctoral student and was here and we worked on this and now he's an associate professor at MU. But what we've done is we've developed an electronic version. But things have changed. And if you look at what AOGA is asking us to do, is they're asking us to be more responsive to diversity and ethnicity and age. And a lot of people were using the activity card sort with younger people, and they were pictures of older people. So what we did is we developed a new version that even this time includes extreme sports because we took it down to um, young adults. And there are three pictures for each activity showing different ages, different ethnicities, people in wheelchairs, and people um, with, well, I guess it's age, ethnicity, race, and and disability, obvious disability status throughout this so that it can be used with people with spinal cord injuries. It can be used with young adults. It can be used with older adults and everything. And it's electronic, so it this, not only does the score get calculated, it generates a report to what the people think their top priorities of activities are and um, sets, sets it up for goal development. So that will be coming out probably within the next six to nine months. That's um, exciting. Where, where can our listeners find that when it does come out? Well, um, I'm sure there will be advertisements. And um, we will, um, AOTA, I believe, will continue to sell the older version. But mm -hmm. I'm hoping that AOTA will want to market the new version, too. Mm -hmm. it, because the data gathering is inherent in the program, it's not something that can be distributed except by the manufacturer. So we've yeah. got to work out those situations. But it's already being piloted in research projects, and people like it because it only takes about 20 minutes. But you also have a printout of what you can leave with the person so they can discuss things with their families and sort of see what their plans are. That sounds great. It sounds like a great, quick, and efficient assessment to really paint a picture of what someone was doing before their accident or injury or disease and kind of help identify what things they want to get back to. Yeah. 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 And I don't know how to be an OT without that piece of knowledge, the occupational history of someone. It sort of sets up, yes, we're occupational therapists, that what happens to people is the disruptions in their occupations does affect their health. Yeah. And so we, we can put that together. Um, the other thing we want to talk to you about is functional cognition. And um, this is kind of an interesting story. Mm -hmm. um, when I was doing Alzheimer's research, I felt as a now I was a clinician for 22 years so we're, we're I had a huge body of clinical experience that took me to my questions mm -hmm. and one of my questions was 
What kind of help does someone need so they can be successful with a task? Because, you know, when someone has a cognitive deficit, if they can't initiate or organize their sequence, or they're making poor judgments, or can't complete a task, they are paralyzed from doing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a tool that could do that. And so this is like the late, actually the early 80s. And again, I was working with Dorothy Edwards, and we, we brainstormed a lot. What kind of a task could we do that would let us see what level of help a person needed, but also result in something that the person could see results from and maybe enjoy a social moment with their caregiver. And so we came up with the idea of making cooked pudding. Who doesn't like pudding? (laughs) Everybody likes pudding, and the the Jell-O instant pudding Mm -hmm. required cooking. Mm -hmm. And the reason we needed it to require cooking, there would be a hot pan, there needed to be measurements, you had to turn the stove on and off. You had to pour carefully so you didn't burn yourself. So it gave us an opportunity to observe the performance of the task. So I got made, in the Alzheimer's research group I got made, there was a lot of poking fun at me because this is so different than trails A or trails B where you take a line from one point to another or you stack Mm -hmm. this block or stack that block. And so I was feeling... I had data and I wanted to share it. And I, Leonard Berg, who was head of the Alzheimer's Center, I went to him and I said, I don't think people think I'm serious with this cooking task. Can you find out from some of the people that are um, skeptical who they think would never be able to do this? And he asked a couple of the physician scientists and they gave him a couple of names. And Mm -hmm. so... I filmed one of the men that they said could never do this in a million years doing it and eating the pudding with his wife and showed it before I presented the data about this test. And everybody's mouth kind of dropped Mm -hmm. because you could perfectly see that he didn't initiate, so you had to get him started. He couldn't get all the tools together, so if he laid them out, he could do it. He could, he could, with just a verbal prompt, he could sequence, and he could, and then he could sit there, and his wife could observe him doing these things with a guided, it was kind of an early guided discovery project, when you think about it, because you were giving the least level of cue necessary to guide the person to perform the task. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I get my dissertation done, and I'm using this data, and I have this, because this was a project where they had all these neuropsych tests, and I had the kitchen task assessment, I showed the correlation among these tests, and one of the scientists spoke up and said, my God, Carolyn, it looks like you have an executive function measure. And I thought, oh, I have a measure of executive function. I better learn more about that. <laughs> so I, I started reading about executive function and realized that it is executive function that is critical for the establishment of a goal and plan.
planning to carry out a goal, and by this time, Helen Polidecos went along her work with co-op. And so I was going to a meeting. I knew she was going to be at. I said, I need to meet you. We need to talk. And then she and I worked together for 10, 12 years um, and brought her work with children into work with stroke. But anyway, we went from the pudding, and uh, I have another therapist to to um, credit with this, and Kathy Lysak published a paper on what a person needed to be able to do to be safe living at home. And it's they needed to be able to heat up a meal or cook something simple. They needed to be able to manage the phone. They needed to be able to manage their medications, and they needed to be able to manage a bill. And so, voila! We took the framework of the kitchen task assessment into those four tasks and developed the EFPT. And that EFPT has been now validated with, well, the kitchen task was validated with Alzheimer's, but the EFPT was stroke and head injury, and it's been also used in head and neck cancer, and many, many, many publications on the EFPT. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I continued to be just puzzled about was a lot of neuropsychologists felt that what we were doing was working in the area of fluid cognition. So that I had an opportunity working with Alan Heinemann and David Telsky and actually Robert Eaton, who developed an NIH toolbox um, cognition test, to go into a sample of 200 people with stroke, 200 people with head injury, and 200 people with spinal cord injury after one year of being home after rehab. Mm -hmm. And we had all the gold standard neuropsych majors, all the NIH toolbox cognitive majors, and the EFPT. And I was able to look at how the EFPT performed. And if, in fact, it was the same as fluid cognition, there would not have been differentiation from it. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, there was. Matter of fact, when we did the first factor analysis, there showed up to be three factors. And because I wanted it to be a mathematical strong process, we wanted to be sure that we had a maximum likelihood um, factor analysis so that it would maximize the amount of the mathematical pieces of it. And so I showed this data where it showed that crystallized fluid and functional cognition were three independent variables. And I showed it to my neuropsychology colleagues and they said, well, that could really have happened by chance. And I said, well, how are we going to show it didn't happen by chance? And they said, well, you need to do a confirmatory factor analysis. And so we split the sample. We had enough people to split the sample. And we did a structured equation modeling. And we found that the strongest model for overall cognition in these neurologically impaired individuals was, in fact, three factors. Crystallized cognition, which is reading and communication. Fluid, which is working memory, inhibitory control, traditional neuropsych. And then functional cognition, which was initiation, organization, sequencing, safety, 
judgment. And that's where it became clear to me that cognition supports language and thought and memory, but it also supports doing. And functional cognition supports doing. And what we found was just really even more amazing because when we did it exclusively on the spinal cord injury group, we, which you can do the EFPT with the spinal cord injury group because they can tell you, please open the carton of milk for me. Mm -hmm. That They're doing it. They just physically can't do it. Yeah. So you can do it. So when you run it, ran it as a whole group, they said there wasn't a major difference in the T-scores between the groups, the mild, moderate, and severe spinal cord injury. And I said, okay, Bob Heaton, I want to divide them into those who need help versus those who don't need help and queuing. And then we'll run those to see if there's differences. And he said, sounds like a plan. And we did. And those, not every person who has a spinal cord injury has a concomitant cognitive problem. Mm -hmm. But about 65% of them do. So can you imagine having a fall or a concussion that can actually fracture the spine and not get shearing in the head? Huh. And so what we've identified in this paper we're working on right now is that people who need cognitive support have a permanent head and spinal cord injury and have executive dysfunction. So that translates right to practice. What kind of support do people need to be to do a task? It goes right into work, it goes into home, it goes into driving, it goes in. So many everyday life activities are so cognitively driven at a functional cognition level, not just at what the neuropsychologist can say, we need to be partners with the neuropsychologists to really identify these things. And so that to me gives me as an OT a stronger understanding of why I need to be looking at functional cognition. And I think for a long, long time, OTs, and it's probably because science hadn't caught up, but we looked at sensory and motor systems, mm -hmm. but we didn't look at cognition. I now understand that sensory systems provide input, motor systems provide output, but cognitive systems put the processing and the pieces together between them. And so if we're going to truly address the everyday life needs of people, we have to put functional cognition in the formula clinically because if they have to set their goals and make their plans and carry out their tasks. They have to have a cognitive capacity to them. Wow, that was uh, that was amazing to hear. Um, all your experience and it all coming down to really hit home the point that cognition is so important in participation and everything us as OTs do. It puts us in a really wonderful position because we are the only profession that looks at the whole. PT has huge expertise in movement. Mm -hmm. 
Speech has huge contributions in cognition, but OT has the huge contributions in performance and participation. And I guess OT is working with people like, let's focus on, on what our best contributions are on that participation and on performance and be aware of cognition and how it affects those things uh, so that we can provide the best care possible. And I guess I just want to say one more thing. Absolutely. People after um, they have a neurological condition, and you know, with cognition, we aren't dealing just with neurological cognition uh, conditions anymore. People with lupus, people with diabetes, people with cardiac conditions, people with MS, people with drug abuse, people with alcohol abuse. Cognition is a part of doing. It is the element of doing. And so if we don't screen for that, what we do is we leave poor families in a really bad situation because it doesn't have the motor display. Families often think people are being willful when they aren't cooperating or can't. You know, we learn about apraxia. We know about motor planning. You can't get a compensatory strategy for motor planning unless the person self-talks themselves through the task. But unless the family knows to help them get the task organized and get them to self-talk, people are going home from rehab so early and they have been sick and scared. And they only knew what happened in their lives before their last incidents of disease, upheaval, or um, an accident. And so their perception of themselves is that they can do things that they can no longer do. Mm-hmm. And so the family doesn't understand that this is going on inside the brain. And so this need to have the right level of cognitive support to help them through that next stage of recovery so they can relearn cognitive strategies for until things become routine again. And so we set up a lot of, of real uncomfortable situations in families when they don't understand the cognitive implications of what's happened. Me, with kind of a, a student and clinician focus, hearing you say all this kind of emphasizes to me, always remember to do cognitive screens of clients, uh, really try to identify the supports that they need in order to complete tasks, and maybe even most importantly, share those supports and that level of cueing or assistance that they need with their family or caregivers so that when they leave rehab, they can participate and perform. Um, is there anything else you would add or recommend the practitioners to keep in mind? Well, the thing that probably makes me the saddest is when I hear an OT say, we don't do cognition, speech does. Speech has a major role in cognition, in communication. But you have the major role in doing in cognition. And PT really needs to have a major role in movement and cognition. Cognition is not something that can be delegated to a discipline. It needs to be there to support the person. And you have that expertise. And if you don't, 
there are resources now. Tim Wolf's got a new online book that I found out just this week. It's going to be um, published by AOTA, which is up-to-date cognitive um, management of functional cognition. There is a lot of literature. If you want to learn, uh, this is what I do. I set up Google Alerts on executive function. So every week I get new Google Alerts to just scan what's going on. And then if I need to get the paper, I can get it. So we are professionals. We have a body of knowledge and we have a lens. And it doesn't matter where you went to school, you were educated to be an occupational therapist because you met the standards of occupational therapy. But the profession is moving ahead because we have a whole new level of scientists that are doing important work that we need to follow. We shouldn't just in our lives, we get into routines and they're comfortable. In our professional lives, we can't stay in routines because we have all these scientists giving us the information to use to improve the lives of the people we're serving. And that is our professional responsibility. I would, I would definitely echo that. And we're trying to do that with, with this podcast. And we'll put links to some of these resources that you've mentioned um, so clinicians can really be confident in, in the role um, or in the knowledge that they have about cognition and performance. Um, so thanks so much for sharing your expertise. Oh, you're welcome. It's uh, fun. We've talked a lot about cognition and functional cognition and some of the research you've done with that. I was thinking now maybe another big factor in, in PEOP are environmental factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask kind of your perspective on the role that the environment plays in OT intervention and how practitioners can assess someone's environment and provide the best intervention for them? Whoa. That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question. But again, I think all you have to do is think of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, do we do anything that doesn't have environmental support? We don't stand there and brush our teeth without a toothbrush. We don't see the world without our contacts or our glasses. We don't we don't carry a suitcase through a major airport. We, re- we wheel it. There are things that are afforded to us because there are tools for us to use. And I think that, that we have some real expertise in environment in our profession. And I hope you have people like Jess Dashner and Susie Stark and people like that come onto your podcasts to talk about environment and safety and things like that. What I can say is some of the most powerful um, environmental issues that we have to do, I've sort of mentioned, but I didn't put them exactly in an environmental context, but social support it has informational support, it has emotional support, and it has actual physical assistance come in the form of social support. Mm-hmm. And that's an environmental factor. Social capital is an environmental factor, and that is who do you know who can help you get the resources that you need to be able to do what you need to do? And it's like something that 
particularly as therapists and as students, it is absolutely critical for you to know who to go to to mentor you and to get you accessed into networks mm -hmm. to get the information and the tools you need to do your job. Um, the other aspects of environment certainly are technology. And I think that technology should be um, put in the context if it's a tool for daily life. Now, you've grown up, if you're young, with a really broad experience in using technology or much faster at using technology than an older person. And it's not just their processing speed that slows them down. It's that they just don't have the experience with technology, but they can use it. And there are so many ways people don't have to be alone if they're using technology for Facebook, for really the whole FaceTiming with grandchildren and being a part of people's lives and things like that. But even more is going to come. And that we're, we're actually, my colleagues and I are working on a project right now because there's a designer that wants to design a community that supports aging and maybe it starts with an apple watch well you know if you're gonna if if, if you fall it's it, right there it notifies the the services to get you help mm -hmm. i mean so just like we're learning more about how the body operates and what supports capacity we have to be open to what the environment is to afford the person to remove the barriers that a person has that supports their daily life. Um, I'm working on a project right now with one of my um, graduate students who's getting her master's in clinical investigation. She's an OTD. And she's working on a project with Beth Skidmore and Joy Hamill and I because we don't know what are the actual barriers that people are facing on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to do the things that are important to them. Now there's a whole new technology and I hope you'll talk to Alex Wong to give clinicians an understanding of what's happening with this exploratory momentary analysis. Because at a point in the daily life of the person that they're trying to do something they want to do, they can record that and tell us what's the barrier. Is the barrier no one to do it with? not the resources to do it with? Are they too tired? Are, are they being prohibited from doing it because there's a barrier on their street? Is the neighborhood not safe at the moment? Mm -hmm. what, what's causing these behaviors that are limiting uh, uh, participation? We don't know. We just know from static assessments which are good, like the Community Participation Index is a wonderful tool that persons and their family could fill out together. And um, to, to be able to think about what barriers are people facing, and if you're facing a barrier and you don't have a strategy to overcome the barrier, then you're not going to be active. So it may be the barrier of winter weather. It may be the barrier of summer heat. I mean, there's many things that 
have to be in the radar to support participation. But there are so many things that can be done using technology, and I hope that OTs will, will maybe among us, I, that's how faculty works. You have people that truly understand cognition, and somebody else is really, really strong in, in depression and, and anxiety, and somebody else is really, really strong in environment, and we can work together to problem solve what people need to be able to do. It's not like you have to have all the expertise in your head, but you have to balance out the expertise. I think we've done the wrong thing when we say that we want we want to hire someone just like the person who left. We need to hire people who have and bring expertise to the whole. And I love that perspective. And I think your career has been a great example of that in all the interprofessional collaboration you've done in bringing your expertise to the table and also also asking other professions and other people to to bring their expertise and together do something that can direct the whole entire field. Well, it was interesting when you introduced me, you said you were sitting today in the Institute of Public Health, and mm -hmm. this is the first time there's an OT lab in the Public Health Institute, which is, to me, a major milestone for OT to be visible in the whole idea of developing population health. And Alex and my Dr. Long in my lab is right here with all the people that are doing public health work and we're collaborating with them because the whole idea of participation and engagement in everyday life is not just a medical condition. Actually, I think it's OT that bridges between the biomedical world and the sociocultural world of health because what people do is so important to their recovery and sustaining health and growing and moving into aging in place or transitioning into jobs from school or, you know, we, we have... We, have, we are not limited by, um, in our field, we are not just what we see in front of us. There is a collective of people working on the everyday life aspects of activity. And it's, oh gosh, it's such an honor to be an OT and be around so many really brilliant faculty and students and colleagues and, you know, growth just happens every day. I mean, yesterday I learned two or three new techniques with Microsoft Word that made me made it possible for me to get a project done because a student came over and taught me. So, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just like you should never feel like you don't have what you need to do, what needs to be done because there's somebody that can help you. And I want our patients to feel that way. Absolutely, and I think we can we can help them find that. And I love what you said about how OT is bridging the gap between bio, the biomedical perspective in medicine and the sociological perspective. Um, I think it's so important for all OTs to do, no matter what setting, whether it's a community setting, to not neglect the biomedical part, and if you're in an acute care setting, not neglect that the socio 
cultural part of medicine as well. Well, I think that we're known for this. Like, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, this is a new project that I'm really excited about. Medicare is now paying for cochlear implants for people over 65, but only about 20% of the people are successful with their cochlear implants. So this ENT and I were having this conversation, and I said, well, what's their cognitive profile going in? He said, we don't know. I said, well, cochlear implants, that requires a huge amount of brain relearning to be able to, to successfully hear mm -hmm. with this implanted uh, system. He said, yes, it does. And he said, and maybe we should find out what their cognitive profile is. And I said, okay, let's do the cognitive profile. We can do the toolbox and we can do the executive function test, but let's look at their activity patterns and their social support and their own perception of their health so that we know what is the characteristic of this individual. And then we can see, maybe we can start to build a predictive model. Let's pilot it, see if it works, and then we can go for an R1. So, OTs are there with the mm -hmm. questions. We've just got to be sure that we are following these things. Awesome. That's a, that's a great example as well of how an OT can incorporate this line of thinking into everything they do. Um, so, thank you so much. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Okay. Um, I call this my, my golden nugget segment on the show. Okay. Um, this is when I ask guests. If they could tell OT practitioners one thing, what would it be? One thing. Have confidence in the fact that you've got a body of knowledge to help people live their lives. I think we've been in a situation for a long time where people feel like they're doing a job that somebody's sort of gauging their productivity on. Mm -hmm. And we've got to use our body of knowledge to employ a lens to improve people's lives because all the new payment structures are based on the people being satisfied and feeling that their progress has made a difference in their lives. And, and we can do that. So um, I think we spend a lot of time trying to get our patients to feel confident and have the self-efficacy to do things and I just want to see it in OT and I'll tell you something that's bothering me really 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 much right now mm -hmm. on Facebook there's a t-shirt that people keep talking about and I keep seeing it that says occupational therapy no one knows what I do it breaks my heart that people would buy and wear something that says no one knows what I do. We have got to know what we do and have other people know what we do, that we're there to help people live lives and put the pieces together that use their capacity to engage in their lives that are full of meaningful activities. And so I'd like to see somebody make a new shirt, new t-shirt that says occupational therapy. We're here to help you live your life or something. Pay money for that, but not to tell people no one knows what you do. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I get asked by friends of mine and family members what OT is. 
And I think sometimes it's like the easy answer is to just kind of like, oh, like no one really knows and kind of brush it off. But oh, we no, need no, to be no, confident no, no. and share it with everyone. Our confidence is critical because yeah. the system is looking for what our body of knowledge prepares us to do. I couldn't have said that any better. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to How to OT. I hope you are as inspired as I am after that interview with Dr. Carolyn Baum. Until next time. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day, every, every single day. So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light As I work hard for all I need Open arms, embrace the life And all the which you gave to me I work, it pays off I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes sometimes And feel as if I blow away I love the life I live And enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living Yeah, that's what I say I got one life to live And I wouldn't live in no other way Hey, hey, hey I'm on vacation single day cause I love my occupation hey, 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 I'm on vacation every single day every every single day hey, I'm on vacation every single day cause I love my occupation hey, 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 I'm on vacation if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it